This is the Living in Mid-Bloom podcast, lighthearted and heartfelt conversations about what it looks like to live, heal, and blossom in middle age. I'm your host, April Pruitt. Let's get our bloom on. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Living in Mid-Bloom. This week, we're discussing grief and resilience. The content of this episode is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek guidance from your healthcare professional. Now, I'm pretty sure that grief has touched our lives in different ways, and we all experience grief differently. My understanding of grief is when you are experiencing a great loss, something extremely painful and anxiety-inducing and, and anguish. We usually describe the pain and the passing of a loved one as grief, but there are various reasons for feeling grief. The loss of a marriage, an accident, Mental and physical health issues can be very traumatizing. Childhood trauma or natural disasters. Recently, the uh, hurricane in Florida, Hurricane Ian, people lost their homes. They've lost everything. And some people lost their lives. These things can be devastating for families. And no one can tell you how to grieve. I've had people in my life that have certain expectations about how I should grieve. I lost my dad years ago, and a friend told me about three months after I lost him that she was annoyed because I was still crying. I was still grieving. I really didn't take it in at the time, but I remember it. And (laughs) I, I find that there are people that are uncomfortable seen someone experience deep pain, and I think that's what that was. And then you hear about different stages of grief. I've heard about five stages of grief. I've heard about seven, and then they're supposed to be in this order. But I mean, again, nobody is going to experience it the way somebody writes it down. The bottom line is that you do what you need to do to take care of yourself, and you can grieve in your own way. Because your life has changed forever, and it's learning how to live this new life. I had the privilege of speaking with Beth Tomas. She's my guest for these next two episodes to share her recent and ongoing journey through grief. In September of 2021, Beth lost her husband and tarot of 21 years. He died of complications from a massive stroke. Within a few weeks of his passing, her brother Skip died of cancer. Then a few months later, Beth was diagnosed with breast cancer. We spoke last year, and the following is part of our interview. It's about her husband and her brother. Beth shares what she loved about Antero and how they met and came together and then losing him, and the difficulty of losing her brother so soon after that loss. My apologies, I had a sinus infection during that interview, so my voice will sound a little strange. What was he like? 
my favorite trait of his was he was funny. Yeah. He always knew how to make me laugh. Having a sense of humor is big. <laughs> and he didn't take himself seriously, so he could take a good amount of ribbing. There was a lot of repartee back and forth. In our family, I always say you have to have a thick skin to live in the Tomas family household. <laughs> and so, yeah, he was a dedicated husband, a dedicated father. He loved his family. My daughter-in-law, who shares a fandom, I guess, if you will, of the Fast and Furious movies with my husband, <laughs> described after he had passed, it's like, uh, and Taro's just like, just like Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. I don't have friends. I have family. Okay. The difference between him and Vin Diesel's character is that actually Antero hung with his family. You know, his brothers and his cousins, they were raised together very close. And so he didn't always have a need to have lots of friends around. Whereas I have my friends, my family out all over the country. And now some of them are just gone forever. So I have my friends that I keep close. So you both had your families in different ways. Yeah, we did. How did you guys meet? We met at a picnic, a Labor Day. I used to go clubbing. Now, what year was this? Oh, 1980-something. <laughs> you were five years old out there. Guys, they let me. I was a mature five-year-old. In the club. <laughs> so we were into alternative music. And so that was my thing to do. And I took a break for a few weeks. And in that break, my friends met this guy, Antero, or I guess they pronounce it. They're, all I know is that when I came back to hang, they're like, you've got to meet this guy, Ontario. He's so cool. <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever, you know? And so I met him, but with a name like Ontario, which is usually a name that you see given to a black man. So I expected to meet this six foot tall black guy. (laughs) He was a five foot eight Filipino guy and he had hair all over. It was, he had curly, very curly wavy hair, but he tried to wear it in a long modified mod cut, you know, so it looked like a bob. Gotcha. Or his bangs in front of his face, which he called his veil. That's funny. Yeah. How long did you know him before you knew this is it? (laughs) it's probably better to ask him how long he knew me oh oh, okay (laughs) while yeah he would describe when we were doing premarital counseling he described to the the pastor that our relationship was like two sons colliding each of us are very passionate and not passionate just we are very strong in our feelings and Mm -hmm. all to something and so it was fast and furious um, when we first met. And then I got scared and he got weird in my head. And I was like, I, I can't be with you. When did you start the marriage counseling? How long did you guys know each other before you were making that step? Oh, we met in 88 and we got married in 2000. Okay. A little while. So, but a lot of that time we worked together. Okay. Long enough to, to make Vashti our oldest. And then I'm very strong, very independent. And I was like, I'm not marrying you just because you got me pregnant. You know? Okay. Meaning I don't need you. Go away. Well, that really is a strong position. Yeah. But we kept drifting back and forth through the next decade. And finally, in 1999, I was like, 
okay, we're back together. I really just need to let go of all this. I can't be with you because I broke up with you stuff because I apparently can. And let's just explore this. And so you said you were fearful. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why I just like, you know, I, I had never experienced such intense feelings Hmm. and Antero literally I am very much a toe dipper in anything. So I put my toe in, take it out, put my toe in, take it out. And, and Taro was, he knew right away. He knew we played football when we first met at that picnic and he quarterbacked for both teams. And one of my teammates tackled me and I got up and reamed him. I'm like, I'm on your team. I'm like yelling him. And then Taro was like, that was my siren song. She's going to beat him up. That's my woman. <laughs> that's, that's it. He's like, oh, I like this one. And so we had an argument very soon into our relationship. And I was like, oh, I'm done with you. Bye-bye. See you later. And he's like, no, I can't let this go. So he called back. He, he, you know, he had done something stupid. And in my mind uh, at that time, unforgivable. And apparently, obviously, I forgave him. But he convinced me to go back out with him. Then shortly after that, he handed, put his college, you know, his high school class ring on my finger. And it said that was my engagement ring. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> it was all he had. It was all he had. You know, so wow. I'm like, you know, so it's, it's very sweet. He's, you know, and he always like, I, don't call me romantic. I'll get beat up on the bus. But he was, he was a romantic at his very core. And so I think that that was romantic. It was a little soon because we'd only been dating like maybe six weeks. And I'm like, mm, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I told you, he knew right away. Wow. And I'm like, mm, you, you scare me. This is intense. I don't know what to do with these things, you know. And he brought up all these feelings out of you. Yeah. And so we stayed together for a few more months after that. And then I was like, I, it, it just was more than I could deal with at that time. And, and, and then surprise. <laughs> and I didn't even tell him until I was like three months pregnant. And I thought, well, okay, he probably has a right to know. But you can't come play with me. It's not happening. You know? Yeah. Was he in your daughter's life during those years? He was. He came when she was born. I, I called him when he was, when I was seven months pregnant because I had really subscribed to the belief that I was eating for two. Um, and so had put quite a bit of weight on. Okay. I was like, you need to see what you've done to me. (laughs) (laughs) Look at me and say, come, this is reality. And I remember saying to him at that time, I said, whether we like it or not, we are stuck together for life. Yeah. We're passionate people. So, (laughs) you know, it was like, you know, and and there's no middle ground. You're either really ticked off or you're really happy. So we went and swung that pendulum back and forth. And uh, finally, yeah, it just realized, I was like, if we keep coming back to each other, no matter what, something's going, we yeah. explore this. So yeah, it, it, took, it just took a long time. We, I always say we both had to grow up. Well, that's true. How old were you when you guys first met? I was 24 and he was 22. So yeah. Still babies. So once you guys got married, was it still that pendulum or was it less the back and forth? It No, it was much less. It was a hard first year of adjustment. My parents were married for life. 
and miserable. His parents were miserable and finally divorced when all the kids grew up. So he said in the first couple months of marriage, didn't say this before we got married, he says after we got married, he goes, if it gets really bad, let's not stay together just because the kids, you know, and this was before Valerie was born. You know, let's not stay together just because we have a kid. And I'm like, so immediately I went from wedded bliss to abandonment issues. Oh, gosh. And then, and then I quit a, a very good paying job thinking I had things, you know, so I stressed the marriage. He stressed the marriage. We made it miraculously through that first year. And then for the most part, we just kind of went along. I always said iron does not sharpen iron in this household. For two passionate people, we just both were so much alike that, you know, we didn't really fight. When we did, we did a really good job of it. You know, it was like days without speaking to each other, you know. Oh, gosh. It, otherwise, it was just, it's like it was, it was a normal marriage, and you know, except for how it began, in that, you know, we all have our ups and downs, but we had a really good, solid marriage. And the one thing we knew more than, you know, more than anything is that we loved each other. That's great. We had made this commitment and it was in for life. So, you know, every marriage has its ups and downs. But, you know, for about for the most part of that, our marriage, we were we were a team. You know, I think that's the hardest part of adjusting right now is because my whole life was in with him and and my kids and my kids are grown and out on their own now. And he's gone. Beth, what happened? I don't know how you lost him. In a sentence, he had a massive stroke and died from the complications afterward. Um, to understand the trauma of it was, um, to give you a little background, and Tara was very big on making sure that we communicate where we are. If you're going to be late, you let somebody know. I got in trouble early on in our marriage because I was out somewhere and I was late and I didn't have a chance to call. You know, and I was like, oh, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'll just explain when I get home. And he was livid when I got home. And he's like, I have no idea where you are. It's really rude. You're in a relationship. We got to, you know, (laughs) you need to let people know where you are, blah, blah, blah. And he lived what he preached in that moment. And he never, ever left his office to come home without some way communicating to me that he was on his way home. That's nice. Yeah. So... That was my first indication that something's up because he had gone to work and, and, you know, it was still during COVID. Most of the days he spent working from home, but he was like that day he went into the office. His, his team traveled to support warehouses, distribution centers. They did the, the computer infrastructure. And so he was testing equipment that day, which meant he was in a lab by himself. Oh, gosh. Come home. And I'm like, that. I mean, I remember texting him. The chicken went bad that day. I said, chicken went bad. Dinner's on me. What do you want? I texted him. Nothing. You know, and I'm like, okay, well, he's busy. 5.15, he's not home. I'm not hearing from him. He's not left. 5.30 goes by. 6.30 goes by. And I'm like, he's not answering my texts. I texted my sister and I said, Antero is not home. He's not answering his phone, you know, I will not freak out until seven o'clock, you know, and this is 625. I texted my sister and seven o'clock came, eight o'clock came and I'm not finding him. By this time, I'm calling friends in the, the police who worked in the police department saying, what do I do? 
them going from there. I called a friend over. I said, you need to come and help me because Antero's not home and I'm going to lose my crap. And she's on the phone. We decided, you know, where would logistically he would be taken if he had an accident. So we decided the hospital in the middle of his route. <laughs> and so she's on, she, that's where she started. She's on hold. I'm calling the police. I'm also calling the security because he worked on a gated campus. The first two times I went through, I said, let me just get to the automatic. So I can, you know, the automated system where you can dial, put the person's name in and get their extension. First time it was garbled and I'm like, okay, let me move on and do something else. Second time I talked to the person and I said, let's send me through to that again. And I went through to the automated system and I couldn't put his name in to get an extension. So I was like, okay, you know, whatever, let me, let me do something else, you know, it never occurred to me because I've been on the campus and in my mind, my denial mind, this was a guy that was sitting in a booth that checked your ID to be sure that you're allowed to go on to a campus that housed tens of thousands of, of employees, you know, but it was just this guy sitting in a booth. I'm like, what is he going to do? So my friend finally said, call him again and tell him what's going on. So I did. He's like, oh, I'll have some of my team go up and check and see because it looks like he had badged in, but he hadn't badged out. So that he, as far as they knew, he was still on campus. And 40 minutes later, they still hadn't called back. I decided to call. And at that point, they said, he, we found him. For some reason, he had fallen. He's awake and alert. He's being transported to the hospital by ambulance. And this was up in Lake Forest. I live in Wheaton. That's 40 miles. It's an hour drive. So my friend who was with me drove me up there and we went from there and found out he'd had a stroke and they were going to take him to a better hospital in the city. And it was just, it was up and down after that. And in the meantime, we're also waiting to find out why my brother couldn't have shoulder surgery because they found spots on his lung and his liver and his adrenal gland. And they were trying, they were testing to see if it was cancer. So we're waiting to find out if my brother has cancer. My husband is in the hospital, has a stroke, had to have two surgeries to save his life. The first one was like, save his life. We weren't sure what was going to come back, but save his life. The second one was, we're just saving his life. We're not saving quality of life anymore. But my children were on their way and they couldn't have him pass away while they were traveling. I couldn't let that. So it was just a no brainer. Do the surgery. Did you ever get a chance to communicate with him after he had the stroke? Yes. Yes. Um, he was conscious. He couldn't talk very well. He's, he was paralyzed. It was his right side that was affected. So he had cognitive abilities. So I got to tell him that I loved him. I called the girls and they got to tell them that they loved him and he was able to, in a way that they could understand, tell them that he loved them. So they got that. When did you lose him? September 21st, last year. Okay. Not even a year. Wow. The three hours before Entero passed away, Skip called. My sister was with me uh, in the room with Entero. And so Skip called my sister and told her that he was terminal that he had cancer of the lung and it was uh yeah it was terminal and um couldn't speak to him for a week 
So I finally called him and talked to him. He, he was going to try. He said that if he had chemo, he had eight months. If he didn't do anything, he had a month. And by the time I talked to him the next week, he had gone through three rounds of chemo and it was more than he could tolerate. And he's like, Beth, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm so sorry. I can't do this. Oh, gosh. And so I ran up to Minnesota. People thought I was crazy because I'm in the midst of my grief. I'm driving up to Duluth. But I had I felt compelled to go up there. I wasn't doing anything but sitting home and crying. I'm like, there was no reason for me not to go up there. And so I went up there and said goodbye to him and told him he could go. I'm sure he was happy to see you. He was. He was shocked. I told him I was going to try and get up there this weekend. He said he'd try and hold on. And nobody bothered to tell him. Or if they did tell him, you know, it wasn't always. Because when he looked at me and he was like, I can't believe you came here. And I'm like, well, what was I going to do? You know, you need to know I'm going to be okay. So somewhere deep down then I knew I was okay. Because I'm Beth. And it's what Beth does. Beth is whether she wants to be or not, is strong. I don't like to use that word for me because it requires expectations. Strong doesn't mean invincible. Yeah. Strong doesn't mean you're living without pain. Yeah. It's just making a decision to keep moving. Well, I guess I'm superwoman, <laughs> wonder woman. Um. So I had to let my brother go and let him know that he could rest easy. You know, that he didn't need to feel bad for not wanting to fight anymore. You know, and that there was no apology necessary. We have our younger sister and she lives in North Carolina. She could not come up because she had just spent time with me, you know, and then Tara spent a week with me. And so I actually put her on a video call so that she and Skip could talk to each other and see each other. And so, so that was good because she had not been able to get up there in over 10 years. She had not seen our brother for quite some. Oh my gosh. And so. Next week is part two of my interview with Beth Tomas, where we discuss her cancer diagnosis, the importance of regular breast exams, and her concern for her daughters losing their mom. Thank you for joining me today on Living in Midbloom. I hope you found this episode insightful, meaningful, and maybe it's given you something to think about. I invite you to share your positive reviews or ideas on topics you would like me to touch on by leaving your comments on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Podchaser, or Podcast Addict. We are all divine beings who just want to be seen, heard, and loved. Have a beautiful day.